Hey everyone, it's time for the Down in the Valley podcast. My name is Todd Golden, sports editor and Indiana State beat writer for the Terre Haute Tribune Star and Tribstar.com. Um, man, there's an echo in this room. I'm in my hotel room in Des Moines, Iowa. It's Monday night in the wake of Indiana State's 74-58 to defeat at the hands of Drake. Um... I stayed tonight and will drive back to Terre Haute tomorrow, but wanted to take some time to uh, briefly talk about the Sycamores. The main event in this podcast is the Missouri Valley Champs Sign Cup, which I recorded earlier, and it will be after this introduction. But sitting here in Des Moines, nice hotel, my last overnight road trip of the season, apart from Arch Madness. Uh, So... I had a little bit of time to do this. The schedule lately has been crazy, as you know. Uh, This is the middle of three games in five days. Uh, ISU will host Northern Iowa on Wednesday. And I'm to the point where I don't even barely remember what day it is. It's February. It's the opposite of last year. Um, If you remember, January last year was when the Sycamores played the majority of their games. This year it's been the other way around where... um, I believe it'll end up being uh, 10 of the Valley games will be played in February, which is a short month. So it's been pretty crazy. Um, and uh, But, you know, that's life. So getting to the Sycamores, I don't want to make this too long because the this is the longest round of the Missouri Valley uh, Champs Sign Cup. So that's relatively lengthy, and I want to make sure this doesn't get to be too lengthy. But... Um, you know, 74-58 loss after ISU had led by three at halftime and led as late as the 13-minute mark of the second half. I mean, what can you say other than it's the same old, same old. Uh, the narrative never seems to change with this team. Um, this was the 14th game out of 16 that ISU has led. Um, and ISU has also led four out of the five contenders for the Valley title on the road this year. They did lead at Loyola. They led here, of course. They led at Missouri State last week, and they led at Northern Iowa in early January with only uh, seven players available. So the only team that they didn't lead at was Bradley, and Bradley has the longest shot to win the Valley title. So, um, I mean, it, it just – and the reasons for the – Losses, You know, there might be some garnishes here and there that change game to game. You know, today the defense pretty much collapsed in the last 12 minutes. That hasn't always happened. Uh, Three-point shooting might go away somewhere, um, you know, to where that hurts them. But several of the things continue to happen consistently. Turnovers, again, you know, tonight, four, uh, 15 turnovers for the Sycamores. Uh, and most of them, and I'll get to this in a second, piled up among three players uh, over the course of the season. Uh, when the game is on the line, the decisions seem to get worse. And, um, you know, I mentioned this during the game. I tweeted this, you know, kind of a bit of snark. But, um, you know, Josh Schertz has mentioned several times during the season that when it comes to ISU's action, you know, quote-unquote, um, you know, too many players are looking to make a home run play instead of hitting a single. Um, 
so to, to boost or to add to his metaphor, uh, ISU continues to try to make too many home run plays. So they're sort of the, become the Joey Gallo of, uh, of basketball teams. I mean, they just continue. There were some passes tonight that, uh, you know, just didn't make any sense and, and, or were forced. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it hasn't changed. It's disappointing. The players, say all the right things about learning the lessons, but then they get out on the floor and do the same thing. It's very frustrating for everybody. Um, so the decision-making, um, and that goes to shot selection as well, um, and some of the defensive decisions too, you know, it's just it's uh, disappointing. Um, you know, some of the weaknesses this team has had would have been known all along. This was never going to be a great rebounding team. Uh, although they have out-rebounded some of the teams that they have played this year, so that's been a nice plus. Uh, I didn't think this team would be a particularly strong defensive unit, and they haven't been. So those aren't really – those the inabilities to do those things isn't really all that surprising, but, uh, the, but the complete uh, inability of the players to fix their own issues really is frustrating. Um, and to that end, better for one of the players to say it than me. Talk to Cam Henry after today, after tonight's game, and here were his thoughts on the the team's inability to get out of this rut and the state of the team in general. Here is Cam Henry. And honestly, I think it just comes down to just us being more mentally tough. I feel like we're mentally weak. Me, like I'm, I'm always including myself when I say that. I'm not just the rest of my teammates, but. Also, as a team, we got to be mentally tough and physically tough to finish out games in the last 10 minutes. Those guys are dogs. They attack the offensive rebounds, and it's hard to keep boxing out and doing that. It takes a certain mental toughness, and I feel like we don't have that right now. On the turnovers, Josh Schertz noted that Cam Henry, Cooper Neese, and Xavier Bledson usually combine for the majority of them, and the statistics back that up. Uh, Bledson is averaging 3.1 uh, turnovers per game, and he's been particularly uh, bad lately at 5 turnovers uh, against Drake after he only had two against SIU last Saturday. Henry's averaging 2.9. He did only have two tonight. Uh, Cooper Neese is at two and a half. A lot of, you know, Cooper kind of somehow escapes uh, some of the scrutiny for the turnovers, but he had six tonight, and that can't happen. So here's Josh Schertz on the turnover issues and these three players in particular being a big part of the problem. Um, and then the turnover bugaboo, and, you know, that's really been something, you know, obviously we've talked about ad nauseum, and we've talked about these guys ad nauseum. Um, but it seems like two of the three, you know, every game, whether it's Cam, uh, Jabo, or Coop, it seems like two of those three are always high, and then, you know, and it, and it just kicks us in where, I mean, like tonight, you know, those two, you know, Coop and Jabo combined for 11, Turnovers and the rest of the team only has four, but you know you get to fifteen, right? And um, and and we haven't had very many games or any games where you know so Henry was low tonight, but then Henry had five against Southern Illinois, but Jabba was low, you know, right. and, you know, and so it just game to game, you know, usually two of those three are are, are, are throwing it away at a pretty good rate, and uh, again we're asking them to do a lot. The ball's in their hands a lot. They're having to make a lot of plays. I get it, um, but they've also you know have to be you know better with that responsibility. So after having the, after those guys, you know, both had their their piece on things, you know, there's 
when you look at the bigger picture, or when I look at the bigger picture, there's really two ways to look at uh, the sycamores. On one hand, they're actually doing exactly what was expected of them, which was very little. Uh, picked down at the bottom of the league preseason on paper. You know, when you looked at this team coming into the season, apart from Tyreek Key and Cooper Nice, uh, there wasn't really anybody who was proven. So if you care about preseason expectations or where this team was supposed to be in the pecking order, um, you know, this is pretty much expected. It's this team just isn't good enough yet. Um, Josh Hertz hasn't had a chance to amass the talent that it takes to run what he wants to run. And I don't think that was ever um, going to be an escapable factor for this season. Um, right now, ISU is 11-17 and 17 at this point overall and 4-12 uh, and 12 in the Valley. Um, the thing is, though, if you care about this, um, ISU did play three non-Division one games this year. Uh, they were originally supposed to play two, and they ended up playing three because of COVID and the Northern Illinois game getting postponed or canceled. Um, so if that were to hold, and really the only, um, you know, there is a winnable game left at Illinois State. We'll see what happens with you and I at home on Wednesday. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't think, I think it's pretty fair to say that they're at the top of the league, so they're favored. Um you know, if if that win total, Division One win total holds, it'll be the the worst D one haul for ISU since two thousand four. Um, so that's disappointing. But again, based on preseason expectation, I'm not making excuses for them. But this is just what was expected. Uh, you know, this this wasn't uh, this isn't a big surprise. Um, here's the the other part of it though um, that is disappointing. Um, the problem is that the Sycamores are doing the worst thing you could possibly do to a fan base, which is to get hopes up and then crash them, uh, and repeatedly this season in terms of, and obviously what I'm talking about is leading against teams and letting those leads uh, fade away. You might recall during the Greg Lansing era that I would bring this this point up quite a bit, either in you know, in writing, or I'm sure I probably did it on a podcast at some point. Um, this team is doing it differently than the Lansing teams did it. Um, I guess the way I would put it is, is that during the Lansing era, I thought his teams disappointed uh, or raised hopes and, and crashed them down on a macro level. There were some big wins uh, over big, you know, almost annually ISU seemed to knock somebody off that, that nobody expected or got a big you know, non-conference win or or rolled into one of the Valley powerhouses and beat them. Um, so there'd be some big wins that would get fans' hopes up uh, only for it to be crashed by losses to subpar teams. Um, and even the best ISU teams under Lansing did that, I can recall. The one that always sticks in my mind is one of the Odom teams uh, going up to a very poor Bradley team and getting beat, that kind of thing. Um, or, and this didn't happen as much as fans thought, there became this whole narrative during the Lansing years of the collapse, quote-unquote. Um, that did happen in 2013, but um, and probably happened once or tw- maybe once or twice, um, depending on how you want to define a collapse, uh, 
elsewhere in Greg's career, but you know, there might be a good start to the season that also raised hopes and then it would be wrecked by a limp finish or or what was definitely true, uh poor performance in St. Louis. Um so that's on a macro level. What this team is doing is on a micro level, uh, as in raising hopes within games and then crashing them down. I mean, it's it's pretty difficult to lead in 14 of 16 Valley games and only come up with four wins. And if you think about it, the four wins they did get were, you know, not by, you know, all of them were close. I mean, the Bradley win at home was close. The Missouri State win at home was close. Evansville on the road was close. Uh, Illinois State was in the game um, at home and center. So, you know, it's weird because the, the the range of what this team could be is so wide. I mean, you're talking about anywhere from if you somehow won all of those games that they led, which, you know, never happens. But if it did, you're looking at 14-2 and two, all the way down to 0-16 is the range for this team. So given that, I guess you would hope to be – um, seven and uh, what would that be? Seven and nine at this point would it would be in the median of that. So, and instead they're four and twelve. So it's been you know some of these games, uh, you know, just by dint of law of averages, should be more in ISU's favor. Um, I don't know. It probably in the end does it really matter? I mean, I don't know whether macro or micro disappointment is worse. Um, but like I said, raising hopes and then crashing them down is the absolute worst thing a team can do to its fan base. You know, it'd be different if ISU had started the season really badly um, and then worked their way um, and got better as the season went along. I think back to the 2009 team, uh, Kevin McKenna's second year, where that team was awful for about two-thirds of the season. I think at one point there were four and 19 or something like that just brutal it was the worst start any ISU team I've covered has ever had but that team won down the stretch and um you know actually went into arch madness that you're really hot and nearly knocked off uh northern Iowa in that tournament so um in a way you know the outcome is ultimately the same but it's the way you go about it that gets fans irritated or excited one way or the other so um, you know, I think if that had happened, if if this team had started low and, you know, saw their the point on the graphs go higher as the season went along, I think fans would be pretty forgiving. But the inability to correct the wrongs that have held ISU back is frustrating, and I I can completely understand why fans would uh, be perturbed with that because it's hard to watch, and it's hard to talk to the players and the coaches after the games and ask the same old questions, you know. Um, why do you turn the ball over so much? Why is the decision-making um, not where it should be in clutch situations? Um, so that's where we're at. So we'll see. The season's running out. I mean, we're almost, you know, ISU will be playing on Thursday night this year for the first time in three years and only the fourth time since 2010. Um, so... The sand is running out of the hourglass. It doesn't feel like it because the games have been coming so quick. But there's only two regular season games left and then whatever they get in St. Louis. So, um, you know, time's running out. And it's uh, if the Sycamores want to make an impression on this season, um, 
there needs to be some sense of urgency uh, to get this fixed. So anyway, that's all I have to say on, uh, on ISU. Let's get to the main event, which is the Missouri Valley Champs Cup, which, as I, as I said, I recorded earlier today. Have fun with that, and uh, we'll do the next round of the Champs Cup maybe later in this week because I want to try to get um, I want to get all the teams done uh, by the time I get to St. Louis next week. So that means I probably need to knock out two more of these rounds before uh, next week. So here we go. Enjoy it, and uh, we'll um, we'll see who advances in the cup. Let's go. All right, so let's get to the main event, the Missouri Valley Champs Sign Cup. We are into the round of 16, and this is a, this is a long round, so we got to get to it. Otherwise, this podcast is going to be super long, way too long. But uh, I did make one change to the format for this. If, if you remember the Arch Madness dice roll that creates upsets, um, I, rolled, uh, I had to roll a one on an eight-sided die to create an upset. Um, I began thinking about it as I got to this round that, you know, obviously not all these matchups are equal. You know, later on for Southern Illinois, we have Brian Mullins versus Tony Young. That is an even battle that deserves, you know, a a, a sided dice that reflects that. But but then you have some others like, um, you know, I'm looking at this. um, What's up? What's a blowout matchup that we have? Alizé Johnson versus Demarcus Sharp, or um, you know, what's another one? Uh, anyway, you get the point. It's not all these matchups are equal, so should all of them have an equal uh, value dice roll? So the way I did it is because I had created a point value for each of the players to to create the buys in the first round, but I'm going to roll a ten sided die for players who are separated by 15 points or more um, in the draw. So, like, if you just made an all-freshman team and you got two points and are going up against somebody who is, a you know, like an all-valley player twice with a lot more points, that, that should be weighted. So I did do that. Um, actually, I put in there that I'd roll a 20-sided die if there was a 30-point difference. I don't think we have any of those in this round. There might be one that I forgot about, but... Anyway, a uh, little procedural change. It wouldn't have affected any of the matchups that created upsets in the first round, so no need to readdress those. So little nerdy, um, little nerdy uh, wrinkle I added to this to uh, make it a little bit more fair. So I'm recording this in Des Moines. Um, it's the Monday afternoon before Indiana State plays Drake. Uh, I feel like this is kind of spiritually appropriate. The, Drake is the only original Valley team left in the league. Uh, so uh, to be here in my hotel and right in the smack dab in downtown Des Moines at, at that uh, feels good. It feels right. So uh, let's get into this. First of all, this is a much longer round, and we have three more schools jumping into the fray. Uh, round of 16, obviously, that means eight matchups per school. Uh, Evansville, Creighton, and and Loyola get involved. They weren't involved in the play-in round because they didn't have enough players who qualified, uh, but they do now. So each round, I think Loyola had 14 players qualify, so they'll have six matchups. But every other, we're, we're into the teeth of this now. This is the longest, uh, this is basically essentially the first round of the NCAA tournament. So let's do it. Wichita State is first because they had the most amount of qualifying 
players, and we start off with a good one. Fred Van Vliet, who got a bye into this round, he was a first-teamer three times and all-defense three times versus Teray Murray, who advanced out of the play-in. Um, excellent player who preceded Fred Van Vliet. Bad draw for Teray Murray, who would have probably beaten several players still alive in this. Uh, he was brilliant in the Greg Marshall build-up years. But Fred Van Vliet, I mean, he could do it all, and he probably, more so than any player I've seen in Valley play, influenced winning uh, among his team. He was a winner. He's going to be tough. To, he's going to be tough to beat in this overall. I mean, if he advances out of the Wichita State bracket to, to quote unquote Arch Madness, uh, he'll certainly be a favorite there. So let's roll though. This is a ten sided roll. Uh, that's how much. Um, how good Van Vliet was. So here we go. And no upset. Van Vliet goes through to the round of eight or the quarterfinals. Next one is Clevin Hanna versus Marcus McDuffie. Both won play-in matchups. Tough call. I'm going to go with Clevin Hanna because he was a little bit more productive at 11.6 points and four and a half assists. Even though McDuffie did play for better teams, McDuffie a little bit disadvantaged by the fact that the Shockers left the league. But Let's go with Hannah. Let's see. This is an eight-sided roll. Let's see what we get. And it's a non-upset. We've not had any Wichita State upsets yet. So Clevin Hannah goes through to play Fred Van Vliet. Next matchup, Jamar Howard, uh, who got a bye into this round. He was a first-teamer twice, second-teamer once, and four-time all-defensive player for the Shockers in the early 2000s. He goes up against Takale Cotton. This is a good matchup. And unfortunately, somebody really good is going to go out I mean, I don't know. Who, if these guys actually played one-on-one, -on -one, I don't know who would score. Um, you're talking about two of the better defenders to grace the MVC among any schools, um, and they unfortunately drew each other in this round. Um, Howard was a monstrous power forward. I only saw him play for one year, but I definitely remember him and the presence he had on the court. Um, and he did help the Shockers develop into a, you know, into a powerhouse when Mark Turgeon was coaching there. Um, setting the table. Uh, he did not play for the 2006 Sweet 16 team. He graduated the year before, but he certainly set the table for that team's success. Cotton's numbers aren't as good because he had other scorers on the team at the time for Wichita State, but he was the best defender on a Final Four team and a regular season unbeaten team the year after that. that this might be some observational bias on my part because I only saw the one season of Jamar Howard and I saw all of Cotton's career, but I think Cotton's influence got the Shockers further. Uh, so I'm going to pick him in a little bit of an upset. But this is an eight-sided roll because these guys were close enough in the points uh, to require it. So here we go. And it's a five. So Takel Cotton goes through over Jamar Howard. I wonder what Wichita State fans would uh, think about that one. Next one, a little bit lower register one. Darius Carter versus Karan Bradley both advanced out of the play-in. Low-key matchup compared to the, the ones we've had so far. Uh, Carter was on the unbeaten Shockers team in, in 2014, and he averaged 11.3 points, uh, and he started every game in 2015. I think he gets the nod uh, over Bradley, who never broke double-digit scoring, but they were close in honor, so this is an eight-sided die as well. And no upset, so Darius Carter makes it to the quarters on the Shockers bracket. Next one. Cleanthony Early, who got a bye into this round, he was a first-teamer twice, an all-newcomer, versus Carl Hall, his teammate for a year. 
um, a battle of uh, a couple of forwards, a juicy one. Uh, early average 15.1 points and 5.7 rebounds. Um, <clears throat> Hall was a year, he was a year ahead of early, averaged 10.4 points and 5.9 rebounds. I have to go with early, um, you know, his influence on that 2013 Wichita State team was immense. Uh, among among the influence of others, but he kind of took them to another level. Carl Hall was really good, but bad matchup for him. But uh, Early was so decorated, he gets a 10-sided die on this one. Let's see how it goes. And it's a 6, so Cleanthony Early is through. The Wichita State has been immune from upsets. It's been all chalk so far for them. Two more matchups to go for the Shockers. This one, Paul Wil- Miller versus Kyle Wilson, two front court teammates of a different era. Um, from the 2006 uh, Shockers team. The two complemented each other well from what I remember, uh, but Miller was a little bit more productive, especially in that 2006 season where he was the Valley Player of the Year. He gets the nod, even though, what I don't know why I remember this, but Kyle Wilson looked a lot like Wooshock, so, um, so he's got that going for him. But uh, this is an eight-sided roll. Let's see who wins. Another six, another non-upset in the shocker bracket. Paul Miller goes through to the quarters, and he will face um, the winner of Ron Baker, who got a bye. Or no, I'm sorry, Paul Miller will place uh, Clay Anthony early in the next round. That'll be good. Uh, next one for the Shockers, Ron Baker got a bye into this round. A first-teamer three times and all defense once versus P.J. Cousinard, who uh, advanced out of the plan. Cousinard was really good. Uh, could play both ends of the floor, but he wasn't Ron Baker good. Baker goes through relatively easily on this one. He gets a 10-sided roll uh, based on the honors he got. As I throw the dice down the hotel floor. Let's roll that again. And it's a three, so Ron Baker goes through uh, to the quarters. And he will face the winner of Randy Burns versus Landry Shamit, a couple of guards going head-to-head from different eras, um, and a bookend matchup of two guys who I didn't see the, the entirety of either of their careers. Uh, I only saw one year of Burns, the, his final season in 05. Shamit, I saw his Wichita State's final season in the uh, Valley. And, and, well, as a, as a meaningful player, anyway. He play, I think he was on the 2016 team, but he kind of came alive the year after that. I'm going to give a slight edge to Shamit. Um, he had more assists and average a few more points uh, than Burns did for the years I saw them. So maybe that's not a fair way to do it, but that's the way I am doing it. So this is an eight-sided roll and an eight. So Shamit is through. So no upsets again in the Wichita State bracket. So moving into the next round, it'll be Fred Van Vliet versus Clevin Hanna, Takale Cotton versus Dar- Darius Carter, Clee Anthony Early versus Paul Miller, and Ron Baker versus Landry Shamit. So... That is the Shockers. Next school we do, Missouri State. They have the second most amount of honorees, uh, qualifiers. So let's, uh, let's do this. First round, Kyle, or first matchup, Kyle Weems, who got a bye into this round. He was a first-teamer twice, second-teamer once, an all-freshman. He was also the player of the year in the Valley in 2011 versus Adam Leonard, one of his teammates. Uh, even though Adam Leonard was really good, he wasn't, MVC player of the year good like Weems was. Um, so Weems wins this one pretty easily. This is a 10-sided roll, and it's a two, so close, but Kyle Weems does go through to the next round. Um, 
Next matchup, Gage Prim, a current Bear, first-teamer once, all-defense and all-newcomer versus Devin Mitchell, who played in the Barry Hinson years and advanced out of the play-in. Um, I have to go with Prim here. He's a beast in the paint, as Indiana State saw last week about this time. Um, but he's not one-dimensional. I mean, he's got some touch on his shot. He can hit free throws. Uh, I like Gage Prim's game. I voted him player preseason player of the year this year. So, um, And Mitchell was a really good player, but... Prim is a load. Maybe that's a little bit of recency bias on my part, but I can live with it. So let's roll on this one. This is an eight-sided. It's a four. So Gage Prim goes through to play Kyle Weems. That's a, that's a nice matchup. Next one for the Bears, Alizé Johnson, who also got a buy into this round. He was a first-teamer twice and an all-newcomer versus DeMarcus Sharp, a recent uh, or still current Bear, I believe. Uh, it's a shame we only saw two years of Alizé Johnson because he was absolutely brilliant and had a versatile game. He could score in the paint as easily as he could on the arc. Um, Sharp is good, but this is a no-brainer. you got to go with Alizé on this one. Ten-sided dice roll here, and it's a six, so we have not had any upsets yet today. Alizé Johnson goes through to the next round. Next one, Obadiah Church, who uh, now we're getting into the schools that, you know, some of the players who didn't necessarily qualify for buys got them anyway because of the amount of players in the individual schools field. So Obadiah Church did luck out and get a buy. He was all defense twice and all freshman versus Jermaine Mallett, who played for the really good Conzo Martin uh, Bears teams of the early 2010s. Church kind of started his career a little bit like Prim. He was a big load in the paint and difficult for other teams to handle, but he kind of faded as he went along. Uh, Mallett was probably, arguably, the second best player to Weems on the Bears' 2011 regular season championship team. Uh, Got to go with Mallett here. Better player who contributed to winning more so than Church did. So eight-sided roll on this one. That's an eight. So Jermaine Mallett goes through, and he'll play Alizé. Johnson in the next round. Um, next Bears matchup, Blake Ahern gets got a buy into this round. He was a first-teamer twice, all-freshman and all-newcomer. He goes up against Anthony Downing, who advanced out of the play-in. Downing was an 80% free-throw shooter, but Ahern laughs at that as he was a 94.6% free-throw shooter. I remember I saw him miss several free-throws when he was with the Bears, and it was always, you know, like the whole crowd at Hammond Student Center would gasp if he missed a free throw. Um, he was also, Ahern was also a 40% three-point shooter in an era where that didn't happen quite as often as it does now. Uh, definitely have to go with Ahern here over Anthony Downing. It's a 10-sided dice roll, and it's a six, so Blake Ahern is through to the next round where he will face the winner of Will Creekmore, who, quali- who got a, also got a a buy uh, as a second teamer versus current Bear Isaiah Mosley. Um, Creekmore was better than I remembered. Uh, he averaged 9.1 points and five and a half rebounds after he transferred from Boston U, and he did play three years for the Bears. Mosley is still playing, but he gets the nod because he's one of the more prolific scorers of his own era. And the book is still written on the success that the Bears may have this year. So I'm going to go with Mosley, but it is an eight-sided dice roll, so here we go. It's an eight. Mosley goes through to the quarterfinals to face uh, Blake Ahern. Next one, uh, this was the first upset we had in the last round to advance. Josh Webster, who advanced via 
Arch Madness dice roll versus Tulio Da Silva, who got a bye, uh, who was a first-teamer and an all-newcomer. That's how he qualified. Da Silva had a strange two-year career after he transferred from, um, was it Central Florida or South Florida? I forget which of the Floridas he was at, but um, he was brilliant his first year. I mean, to the point where you'd consider him for Valley Player of the Year, uh, I think that was two years ago. Um, the other season was a little bit indifferent. He kind of fell off a little bit. Still, I would say he made more of an impact on, on, on you know, than, than Webster did, who beat Keandre Cook in that upset roll in the last round. Can he do it again? It's an eight-sided dice roll. Let's see if Josh Webster can keep it going. Not this time. Tulio Da Silva is through, and we are still seeking our first upset. Final Missouri State matchup, Spencer Laurie got a bye. He was an all-newcomer versus Marcus Marshall. Um, Laurie transferred to Missouri State from Missouri and kind of bridged the gap in the uh, Barry Hinson, Conzo Martin era. He averaged 7.4 points a game. Marshall averaged 14. It was a much better player, even though he did finish his career at Nevada. Uh, but I'm going with Marcus Marshall. Let's see what the dice says. A four. So Marcus Marshall is through, so no upsets yet on either through Wichita State or Missouri State. Missouri State's next round will be Kyle Weems versus Gage Prim. That's a good one. Alizé Johnson versus Jermaine Mallett. Blake Ahern versus Isaiah Mosley. And Tulio Da Silva versus Marcus Marshall. An interesting bracket there for the Bears. Next school, moving on, Northern Iowa. And um, again, we had some guys get buys here just by dint of the way the bracket worked. But let's get into it. Seth Tuttle got a buy by Merritt. Uh, he was a first-teamer and all-freshman and all-newcomer versus Jeremy Morgan, who advanced via the play-in. Their careers overlapped a little bit, and they were both really good. Uh, but you got to give this one to Tuttle. He was a stalwart. He started every UNI game he played, and he averaged 12.8 points and 6.7 rebounds. Uh, he was the Valley Player of the Year. Uh, he gets the nod over Morgan, who gets a bit of a tough draw. But this is still just an eight-sided die because, for whatever reason, Tuttle didn't win that many honors while he was there. So here we go. And it's a three, so Seth Tuttle does go through on the UNI bracket. Next one, West, both these guys got buys into this round. and two, a, a, a matchup featuring two guys who hit iconic shots in the same season. Wes Washburn goes through as a second-teamer and bench captain, or that's how he qualified, versus Paul Jesperson, who qualified as an all-newcomer. Um, both were, uh, power five transfers. Um, and of course they both made iconic shots. Jespersman, who came in from Virginia, hit the better iconic shot, that half court heave, uh, that beat Texas in the opening round of the 2016 NCAA tournament. Washpun, uh, was the one who got them there though. He hit the arch madness clincher against Evansville, the one that clanked off the back of the rim and dropped in, um, I think Jesperson wins the battle of the better shot, but Washburn wins the war. He was a better player overall than Jesperson was. Let's see what the dice say. This is an eight-sided roll. It's a two, so nearly an upset. That half-court heave didn't work this time for Jesperson, and Wes Washburn goes through. Next matchup, A.J. Green got a buy into this round, still playing for the Panthers. He's a first-teamer, all-freshman and all-newcomer, and he faces Lucas O'Rear, uh, who advanced through the play-in round. I could, 
I went back after I did the playing round. I looked at some videos of some of these players and looked at the you know like the Farokmanesh shot and seeing O'Rear back there looking like he was straight out of an Irish Spring commercial brought back memories of him doing all kinds of uh, damage for the Panthers. But uh, O'Rear was one of those bench guys you bring off the bench to create energy, you know, create confusion among the opponent. But Green is a, you know, he's he's a different kind of player, obviously the best player on the on on a UNI team that is as of right now anyway is leading the valley. So um that's an easy choice. AJ Green gets the nod. A little bit of a disadvantage though. Green hasn't played his full career, so he hasn't piled up the honors to avoid an eight-sided dice roll. So let's see what happens. It's a six. So Green goes through. Two face, the winner of Kajo Alegba, first teamer, second teamer, all defense three times uh, during his career versus Ali Farokmanesh, the cult hero of the Panthers. Uh, you know, you and I over the years has been blessed with really good point guards. Washpin was one of them, and certainly Alegba um, is also one of them. If I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Alegba uh, out of all the you and I point guards I've covered. He could just do everything. Um, and was a tough defender, obviously, based on his honors in the league. Farouk Manesh will always have that KU dagger, though, so he lives on in the memory of everyone. But um, by player, you got to go with Allegba. And this is a 10-sided dice roll, so here we go. A 9, so Kajo goes through to face A.J. Green. That's a, that's a good one. Um, next matchup, Grant Stout, who get, got a bye as a first-teamer, second-teamer, and all-defense twice. And he goes up against Dion Mitchell, who advanced through the plan. I'm going to say this because he's been forgotten because he played a while ago. Grant Stout is one of the most underrated and overlooked players, I think, in recent Valley history. Um, he did a little bit of everything for those. He played for, I, I think he primarily played for Greg McDermott. Maybe he played a year for Brent, Ben Jacobson. Uh, he did a little bit of everything. He averaged double figures three times for you and I. He was good for 7.2 rebounds per game over his career. He could pass. He could defend. He was even a 34% three-point shooter. In today's age, Stout would be a lot more appreciated and would be a perfect player for the offensive systems that a lot of teams run because he's so versatile. I actually voted him player of the year um, in the best ever year for the Valley in 06. That was a real battle between several different players that was ultimately won by Paul Miller at Wichita, but I thought he was great, and I don't think he's remembered much, even though those UNI teams did go to the NCAA tournament. So, really underappreciated and the choice over Dion Mitchell here. So, this is a 10-sided die. Let's see what happens. It's a 5, so Grant Stout goes through to the next round. We're still seeking our first arch madness of this uh, of this round. Next UNI battle, Adam Cook, a first-teamer twice and all-defense once versus Johnny Moran, one of his teammates, advanced through the plan. Uh, Cook was the first of an assembly line of Cook brothers to come out of Wisconsin. He was the 2010 player of the year and breezes by Moran, who uh, was a good shooter, but nowhere near as good as or impactful as Cook was. Ten-sided dice roll for this one. It's a nine. So um, if you had, if you wanted to roll ones, it's not a good day for that. Adam Cook goes through. Next matchup, Ben Jacobson, the player, not the coach, uh, first teamer twice, all freshman and all newcomer versus Anthony James, who advanced through the play-in. I, I think the worst thing that happened to Ben Jacobson, the player, was that Ben Jacobson, the coach, emerged right after his playing career ended and became a wild success in his own right. 
um, and frankly, a bigger name in UNI history than the player was. But that shouldn't take away from the fact that Ben Jacobson was a brilliant player, considered the best player on those UNI teams that made the tournament in 05 and 06. Uh, he averaged 14.4 points, and he converted 39.1% from three-point range. He was, it's not, an, it's not an exact analog, but he was sort of an A.J. Green of his time, even though he was bigger than A.J. Green is. Uh, James was really good, but Jake, Jacobson is the, is the clear call here, and this is a 10-sided roll. So let's see what happens. Oh, we have an upset. Ben Jacobson goes down to Anthony James on a 10-sided dice roll, no less. So James beats bigger odds to go through uh, and create a little chaos in the UNI bracket. Final matchup, and they will play Anthony James in the next round. Eric Coleman got a bye as a second, two-time second-teamer, all-freshman and all-newcomer versus Jordan Eggleseeder, who advanced through the play-in. A thunderous battle of big men. Uh, Eggleseeder was actually Coleman's teammate briefly, and he would succeed him as UNI's center of the late 2000s teams that were really good. Coleman, though, gets the nod on the strength of a better career as he averaged 11.9 points and 7.8 boards to Eggleseeder's 9 points and 5.6 rebounds. So uh, eight-sided dice roll here, though. And it's a five, so Eric Coleman goes through. So we did finally have an upset as we finish up the UNI bracket. Uh, here's what the next round will entail. It will be um, Seth Tuttle versus Wes Washpin, A.J. Green versus Kajo Legba, Grant Stout versus Adam Cook, and Anthony James in the upset over Ben Jacobson, and he will face Eric Coleman in the quarterfinals. So finally a little arch madness gets into the fray here. Next school we do, Southern Illinois, uh, who was a powerhouse, obviously, in the early years of my coverage, which is what this tournament covers. Let's get into it. Jamal Tatum, who got a bye. He was a first-teamer once, second-teamer once, and all-freshman, and he goes up against Armand Fletcher, who came up through the play-in. Not really a fair fight. Fletcher was really good, but Tatum is an icon on you know the Saluki's dynastic teams of the 2000s. Tatum could and often did do it all. This is a pretty good choice, but Armand Fletcher got honored just enough to make this an eight-sided dice roll, so let's see what happens. And remember, SIU had a lot of upsets in the, in the play-in round, so here we go. It's a three, not this time. Jamal Tatum is through to the quarterfinals. Next battle, the, both these guys got buys into this round. Kevin Dillard, who was an all-freshman and all-newcomer, versus Dan Teal Daniels, who qualified as an all-freshman, both these guys would ultimately leave SIU before their careers were over. And Kevin Dillard's departure to Dayton um, after two excellent years with the Salukis probably was the final nail in the coffin of Chris Lowry's coaching tenure uh, with the Salukis. Dillard might – it'd be an interesting podcast to do who the best transfers have been leaving the Valley. And certainly Kevin Dillard would be on that list. He may be the best um, as he had a very productive career with Dayton after he left um, Carbondale. Uh, with SIU, Dillard averaged 12.2 points and 4.6 assists and was a very good three-point shooter. Daniels transferred to Colorado State uh, a couple years after Dillard uh, left Carbondale, but he didn't have nearly the same impact with the Salukis as Dillard did. So Dillard is the call here. Uh, it's an eight-sided die. Let's see what happens. It's a three, so Dillard goes through to the quarters. Next matchup, Randall Falker, who got a bye into this round. He was a first-teamer twice and all-defense twice. He goes up against Sean O'Brien, who advanced through the play-in. Uh, I guess the image I have in my mind of the bruising, physically strong Salukis of their peak years 
uh, is an image of Randall Falker just absolutely dominating the paint uh, in a defensive sense. Uh, he jumps to mind. He was an elite uh, shot blocker and rebounder, and he ultimately rounded out into a pretty good scorer by the end of his career, too. Uh, pretty easy call here over O'Brien, uh, and this is a 10-sided die, so let's see what happens. It's a zero so or a 10, so Falker goes through to the next round. Uh, where he will face the winner of Kavion Pippen, who got a bye as an all-defensive player and all-newcomer, versus Mike Rodriguez, who came up through the play-in. This is where the random draw gods get weird. If you don't remember, this was all done by random draw. These brackets aren't seeded. Um, Rodriguez was a two-year starter and averaged 10.6 points. Pippen gets the nod, though, as he tallied 12.4 points and was an all-defensive selection. So Pippen is the call here. Let's see what the dice say. It's a three, so Pippen is through to the quarterfinals. Uh, next matchup, Anthony Bean Jr., a first-teamer once, second-teamer twice, an all-freshman team, uh, versus Gene Teague, who did get an upset role to get through to this round. Teague went through, on the, he beat Sean Lloyd in the last round, but he's no match for Bean, who was a uber scorer, volume scorer in the mid-2010s. Pretty easy call. So let's see, this is a 10-sided roll for Bean. It's a five, so Teague's magic runs out, and Anthony Bean Jr. is through to the quarterfinals. Next batch up, Darren Brooks, a first-teamer twice, all-defense three times, and a bench captain early in his career versus Jordan Caroline, who advanced through, the, who advanced through an upset in the play-in round. Uh, Caroline in a mild upset over Tony Freeman by the Arch Madness dice roll, but he'll need another one to knock off Brooks, uh, who's the 2005 Player of the Year in the Valley and just kicked butt in every sense uh, of the word. He could score, he could defend, he could do it all. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't see all of his career, but I saw seeing one year of it was enough to appreciate what he could do. He's an easy choice. Ten-sided roll on this one. It's an eight, so Darren Brooks is through to the next round. This next matchup, I think, is the best and most even matchup out of any of the schools we're doing today. We're talking Brian Mullins, who got a bye, has a second-teamer once, all-defense four times, an all-freshman and all-newcomer, versus Tony Young, who had to advance through the play-in round due to the random draw. Uh, this, is, this could have been a, like a court, like a semifinal or even a, probably not a final, but uh, close to it for the Salukis. Uh, you got seven all-defensive selections between Mullins, who's currently coaching the Salukis, and Young. Mullins was an extremely smart player and mistake-free point guard for the Salukis. If you look at his scoring only, you can't appreciate what he did for those teams. Young overlapped Mullins just barely, but he was a defensive stopper and a clutch shooter for the Salukis. Here's how even these two guys are. They both averaged 7.7 points. They both converted 39% from three-point range, and they're almost dead even in win shares over the course of their careers, too. too. So how do you split these guys? I mean... Young played on better teams through his whole career, but here's the thing with Brian Mullins that ultimately has me picking him. He was a starter through his entire career, so he had an impact from day one. Uh, Mullins in a photo finish in this one. This is a great. This was by far the most even battle we had among two really good players too. Eight sided dice roll on this one because it's close. So let's see what happens. It's a four. Brian Mullins goes through. As Tony Young, it's a tough draw. I feel bad for him. 
Last Saluki matchup, Desmar Jackson, who went in, who, who advanced through the play-in against Tyler Smith-Peters, who, got a, who, who probably got the luckiest buy out of anybody in any of the schools. He, was only, he only qualified as a bench captain. He lucked out and got the draw. He was a faithful five-year player for the Salukis, uh, so kudos to him for that. Jackson, who transferred into SIU around the same period, uh, actually advanced through an upset role over Matt Shaw, uh, but here, Jackson is, is a better player than Smith-Peters was. Maybe a little bit more combustible uh, in certain ways, but at 16.9 points for two seasons, this is an easy choice. Uh, so eight-sided roll on this one, and Jackson goes through to the next round. So Salukis are done. Here's what they have in their quarterfinal battles. Jamal Tatum versus Kevin Dillard. Randall Falker versus Kavion Pippen. Anthony Bean Jr. versus Darren Brooks, and Brian Mullins versus Desmar Jackson. So some good battles to come in the next round for the Salukis. Next school, Bradley. And Bradley's interesting because over the course of my time covering the league, they've never had that one player who just dominated um, individual honors. They've had a lot of guys who got, you know, qualified for various teams, but they never had that guy who was like a four-year first team or anything like that. So it's pretty even battle among the Braves, but let's get into it. First battle, Daniel Ruffin got a bye. He qualified as a second teamer and all defensive player. He goes up against Dante Thomas, uh, who moved through on the play-in. Ruffin's a pretty easy call. He was a four-year starter, and he did play for Bradley's Sweet 16 team. Consummate point guard. I'm going to go with him. So this is an eight-sided dice roll, though. And it's a one. We have an upset. Daniel Ruffin goes down to Dante Thomas. Wow. So... Upset time for the Braves. Braves had a few upsets in the last round, too, so their bracket is definitely um, has some chaos in it. Next battle, both these guys got buys into this round. Elijah Child, still currently a Brave, qualified as a second-teamer twice and all-freshman, versus Marcellus Somerville, who is a first-teamer twice, second-teamer once, and an all-newcomer player. Real good battle here, and, and, and Childs is excellent and still playing, of course, so he's not done. Somerville was a dominator at, at his best. Um, he averaged 16.2 points per game, 7.2 rebounds over the course of his Bradley career after he transferred in. Um, the thing I remember about Somerville was that when they played Indiana State my first season, uh, Royce Waltman would always stick Amani Donish on Somerville. And um, I think out of the they played three games that year, they, ISU beat Bradley in the what was then the Friday play-in round of the Valley Tournament when the championship game was still on Monday. Um, Donis shut Somerville down. So he was, I always think of him as the Somerville stopper, but Somerville didn't get stopped by many. He was really good. And he is the choice here over Elijah Childs. And it's a 10 sided roll. So here we go. It's a three. So Somerville goes through to face Dante Thomas in the next round. Next Bradley battle, Dyricus Sims Edwards, who qualified as an all defensive player and all freshman versus Andrew Warren, who moved uh, into this round through the play-in. Both were four-year players. Both played in the years in some years of declining fortunes for Bradley. I'm going to give the slight nod to Warren, who averaged slightly more points per game than Edwards did, but this is a pretty even matchup. Let's see what the dice say. As it goes flying, it's a, it's a two as it goes flying across my table. So uh, Andrew Warren goes through. Uh, next battle is Dwayne Laudier-Agunier, all defense and all freshman. He got a buy into this round. 
uh, versus Daryl Brown also got a buy into this round. He was a second teamer twice in all freshman selection. Both played in the Brian Wardell era. Um, DLO was kind of, he was, what I remember of him, it wasn't that long ago, but he was kind of the ultimate teammate. Uh, really good defender, all around nuisance for opponents. Uh, by all accounts, a really good guy and, uh, you know, good. Good, just a good glue guy for that uh, Brad for those emerging Bradley teams uh, under Brian Wardell. However, Brown, who played with him, could take over a game as he often did against the Sycamores. He absolutely blazed them. Um, Brown gets the call here. More, he he was he could dominate at times. So, eight sided rule for this one. It's an eight. Daryl Brown goes through for the Braves. Next matchup, Rick Mast, who did advance through the play-in via a upset rule, versus Luke Von Bray, who got a bye uh, by the random draw gods who qualified as an all-freshman player. Mast beat Tony Bennett in that upset, and he'll use that lift to keep going because even though he's only in his second season, he's already shown more promise and more production than Van Bray, who started his career real, real well for the Braves um, at the beginning of Brian Wardell's tenure but then he kind of fell off as he went along. So I'm going to go with Mast. He's taking advantage of that upset he got in the last round. The dice agree as Rink Mast goes through to the quarterfinals. Uh, like I said, some chaos in the Bradley bracket. Next one, Theron Wilson, first teamer once, all defense and all newcomer, versus San Maniscalco, who was a second teamer once, all freshman and all newcomer. Tough call on this one. Wilson was a forward. He averaged 12.8 points and 6.7 rebounds. Maniscalco played in the same era as as Wilson did. He averaged 10.9 points in the backcourt uh, before he became one of the very first grad transfers to move out of the Valley as he finished his career at Illinois. Um, Maniscalco played longer, but I think Wilson was actually better over his shorter period of time by just a shade. So I'm going to go with Theron Wilson here. Um, Eight-sided dice roll. It's an eight. Theron Wilson is through to the next round. Next matchup. Um, Walt Lemon Jr., who got a bye. He was a second-teamer twice and all-defense twice versus Patrick O'Brien, who moved to this round via an upset role, even though he's the only NBA lottery pick to come out of the league in my time covering it. Um, he beat Jeremy Crouch in that upset role. My rationale was that Crouch had more of an impact over his years than O'Brien did over in his, and O'Brien, I think, is a little bit overrated. Um, and it's funny that he matches up with Lemon because I think both of these players were a little bit overrated. Lemon was one of those guys. I don't. There's nothing wrong with being a volume scorer. Each team in the league has had one at one point. In our, in Indiana State's case, it was Brenton Scott when he played. Um, I still maybe it's old school on my part, but when you got to take a lot of shots to get a lot of points, I still I don't value that very much. Um, unless you're scoring like 40 a game or something. Um, and and Walt Lemon, I remember the other thing too, is he turned it over a lot. And, you know, so I, 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 I just, he was an all defensive player. I just didn't see it. <clears throat> O'Brien's foibles I mentioned on the last podcast, defensively they're similar in that they did well in the flashy stats, O'Brien in blocks and Lemon in steals. Does that mean they were really good defenders on a possession-by-possession possession basis? I don't know. You'd have to go back and look at the film. I'm actually going to go with O'Brien this time um, on the basis of being on a better team. He was on the Sweet 16 team in 06. So uh, let's see what the dice say. 
And they agree, Patrick O'Brien still rolling in the Bradley tournament. So he goes through over Walt Lemon Jr. Next one, Coke Barr. Uh, both these players got buys. Qualified as an all-freshman versus Tyshawn Pickett, who qualified as an all-newcomer. All kind of a dud to finish off Bradley's round. Pickett played two years to Barr's four. Pickett averaged 11.5 points, while Barr was kind of the prototypical uh, energy post guy off the bench. In a bit of an upset, I'm going to go with Barr because he contributed to better teams than Pickett did as Barr played for the Brian Wardell teams that ultimately did go to the NCAA tournament in 2019 and would have gone in 2020. Uh, so eight-sided roll on this one, though, and it's a five. So Coke Barr is through. So we have a weird Bradley bracket uh, going forward um, with the upsets we've had. We get Dante Thomas versus Marcellus Somerville in the next round. Andrew Warren versus Daryl Brown. That's a good battle. Rank Mass versus Theron Wilson. And Patrick O'Brien versus Coke Barr. So uh, weird, weird matchups there for Bradley. Moving on, their rivals, Illinois State, go next. Um, first matchup we have there is Mikhail McIntosh, who advanced through the play-in. He goes up against Malik Yarborough, who got a bye as a first-teamer, second-teamer, and all-newcomer. Yarbrough was kind of a troubled guy. He got into, he seemed to be in the news all the time after he transferred from SLU. But when he did play, he was productive. He averaged 16.6 points for the Redbirds. And I'll give him a very slight nod over McIntosh, whom he kind of replaced after McIntosh transferred after Illinois State's really good year in 2017. So slight edge to Yarbrough, uh, eight-sided dice roll here. And it's a six, so Malik Yarborough is through for the Redbirds. Next matchup, Anthony Slack, who got a bye as an all-defensive player um, and all-newcomer. He goes up against Deshaun Knight, second-teamer and all-newcomer. Slack was a two-year power forward to overlap the Porter Moser-Tim Jankovic transition. Knight played two years in the mid-2010s for Muller. Knight goes through based on his 13.8 points per game. So dice, save your piece. It's a five. Deshaun Knight is through to the next round. Uh, next battle, we have Deontay Hawkins, who advanced through the play-in, versus Phil Fain, who got a bye as a first-teamer and second-teamer and all-newcomer. They overlapped by a season on the magical 2017 team that only lost one Valley game. Um, Hawkins could score, but Fain, I, I really loved Phil Fain when he played for the Redbirds. He just kicked butt. In every way in the post, shot blocker, rebounder, could score. Uh, Fane gets this one for me. I just thought he was a really good player. Eight-sided dice roll, two, so nearly an upset, but not quite. Phil Fane is through to the next round. Next battle, Trey Guidry, a second-teamer and bench captain versus Nick Moore, an all-freshman. Um, interesting matchup of guards, both of whom I only saw play for a year. Gidry actually did play three years for Illinois State before after he transferred in from NC State. He averaged 13.4 points and was a 39.5% three-point shooter. Moore was a one-year wonder in 2012 before he followed Jankovic down to SMU, where he spent the majority of his career. Edge to, to Gidry put in more time with the Redbirds, um, so he gets the nod. Eight-sided dice roll on this one. And it's a two. Nick Moore nearly pulled it off, but not quite. Trey Guidry is through to the next round. Next Illinois State battle, Osiris Eldridge. First teamer three times, all defense twice, 
all freshman and all newcomer. He was the most decorated player, individual player we had among any of the schools based on his honors. He goes up against one-year wonder Lorenzo Gordon, who advanced through the play-in. There are very few Valley players I hold in higher esteem than Osiris Eldridge. The, um, he was brilliant. He could do it all. There was no weaknesses in his game. Gordon was good the one year he played, but this is uh, not even close. Uh, Osiris, easy call here. Ten-sided dice roll on this one, and it's a three. Osiris is not going to be upset in this round. He goes through. Next battle, Dinma Odiacosa qualified as a first-teamer in all-defense versus DJ Horn, who qualified as an all-freshman selection. Odiacosa started his career slow. In fact, I think he redshirted in the middle of his career, if I remember right. But once he got his career going, the Nigerian was a force in the paint uh, for that really good Illinois State team at the end of the 2000s and 2009. Um, Horn is a late-period Muller guard who is currently with Arizona State, and he's currently averaging 12.5 points a game for the Sun Devils. He was good, but Odiacosa contributed to much better teams. He's the call here. This is uh, an eight-sided dice roll, so here we go. And it's a six, so Dima Odiacosa is through to the next round. Next battle, Jackie Carmichael, who qualified as a first-teamer, second-teamer, and all-defense twice and all-freshman versus Tony Wills. It's a real shame that Carmichael is best remembered for that kung fu kick he did to Takeo Cotton back in 2013 in a very eventful regular season game at Red at uh, in Normal. Uh, it's too bad because he was an all-around excellent player, and he deserves to be remembered for that more so than a freakish moment in a game. And he moves on over Tony Wills. This is a 10-sided dice roll, and it's a four. So Jackie Carmichael goes through to the next round. Final Redbird battle, Boo Richardson, qualified as all-defense and all-newcomer, versus Paris Lee, who's a first-teamer and all-defense three times. This is an easy call. Lee... uh, Goes through, he's the 2017 Player of the Year and uh, over Boo Richardson, who played in the uh, in the Moser-Jankovic era. Only an eight-sided dice roll on this, though. As good as Lee was, he didn't pile up enough honors to overcome that. And it's a three, advances anyway. So no upsets in the Illinois State bracket today. Uh, the matchups for the next round are Malik Yarbrough versus Deshaun Knight, Phil Fain versus Trey Guidry, Osiris Eldridge versus Dinma Odiacosa and Jackie Carmichael versus Paris Lee. That's a good one. Uh, next school we do Drake, um, and we're gonna get it. We're gonna have some controversy here. First battle is Adam Emenecker, who qualified as a first teamer, versus Ravante Rice, who uh, advanced through the play-in. Emenecker is still the unlikeliest player of the year the Valley has had since I've been covering the league. He won it in '08. For that magical out of nowhere Drake uh, regular season and tournament championship team, part of that team's charm was Emmanuel's emergence from being a bench jockey. I mean, he barely played in the years before that, to becoming an eight point six point six and a half assist, four point six rebound talisman for Keno Davis's innovative offense that he ran at the time. Um, Good as Emenecker was, I still think Osiris Eldridge probably should have won Player of the Year in 08. Um, and I sang Rice's praises last week. You talk about Kevin Dillard earlier being a transfer of impact. So was Rice, and Rice was really good when he was in the Valley. In an unpopular, vastly unsentimental move, and especially as I record this in Des Moines itself, 
Um, I'm going to go with Rice. He was a better player, um, even though he did leave for Illinois. It's an eight-sided roll. Probably a lot of Bulldogs fans were rooting for the one here. Oh, they get it. Adam Evanecker goes through anyway. He tells me to shove Ravante Rice straight to where I picked him from. So Adam Evanecker is through to the next round. You can't deny his magic. Um, next matchup, Ben Simons. Both these players got buys into this round. Um, qualified as a two-time second-team player versus Leonard Houston, who is a one-time second-teamer. Like Emenecker, Houston rose from the ashes to have a really good 08 season. Like Rice, Simons played on a declining Drake program under Mark Phelps. But Simons definitely put up better numbers than Houston did. Uh, so Simons is the pick. It's an eight-sided roll, and it's a four. So Ben Simons goes through uh, to face Adam Emenecker. Next battle, this is a good one too. Nick McGlynn, first-teamer once, all defense, versus Reed Timmer, first-teamer once, all freshman and all newcomer. Very tough call. Both played in roughly the same era. McGlynn blossomed under Nico in Nico Medved's one season, and then after that, Darren DeVries. But Timmer was more consistent over his four years, even though I do think McGlynn probably was a better peak player. Uh, both were sycamore killers too. They, they definitely feasted on ISU. Timmer gets the nod, though, but this is another eight-sided battle. And it's another one, Nick McGlynn in an upset. So Drake getting the upsets in this round. He goes through on the upset roll. So a mild upset, you know, uh, pretty even battle. Next one, Darnell Brody qualified as an all-newcomer versus Joey King, who qualified as an all-freshman. The random draw gods get weird on us again. Brody is still active. He transferred in from Seton Hall, and while he's uh, you know, he's not a primary contributor necessarily. He did start a lot last year. He's been coming off the bench this year. Uh, but he's a role player compared to some of the better Bulldog scorers on their team, although very good in the paint in terms of protecting the rim. Um, having said that, he's still done more for Drake's uh, excellent recent teams than King did in his only season with the Dogs before he bailed out for Minnesota. Uh, Brody takes advantage of a pretty easy draw here to move on. Eight-sided dice roll on this one, and it's a two. So Brody moves through uh, to the next round. Next Drake battle, Jonathan Bucky Cox, who qualified as a second-teamer twice versus Brady Ellingson, who moved on uh, through the play-in. Um, for all the attention Adam Emenecker got that year, and it's not like he didn't deserve it, but I thought Cox was the actual key to the success of that Keno Davis spread everybody out uh, offense, which at the time was uh, unheard of in college basketball. Cox, I thought, made it work because uh, he was was one of the players who could get – one of the troubles that opponents had against that offense because they just weren't used to seeing it is how you handle blockouts on offensive rebounds and things like that. It's like if you didn't have somebody to pick up, you know, the Drake players could fly in off the perimeter and really do some damage. And Cox, I thought, was the best at that. He dove into the lane. He would avoid uh, the blockouts that were attempted. And he kept Drake possessions alive or scored in his own right. And on top of that, he was a really good shooter. So uh, I thought he was actually – he and Josh Young were the were the, were the key players in that. Um, Ellingson was really good, but I'm going to give this one to Cox because he was a primary contributor – to a Valley champion. So roll on this one. It's a six. Jonathan Cox is through. Next one, Joseph Yasufu, who did get a a bye, uh, qualified as a bench captain versus Ryan Weddle, who qualified as an all-newcomer. 
I mean, the best thing that ever happened to Yusufu was the injury that Roman Penn got last year. Up until that point, um, he was a valuable contributor off the bench, but he wasn't one of Drake's primary guys. After Penn got hurt, he became a go-to scorer, and he rode the wave of being one all the way to getting a transfer to Kansas, where he's kind of fizzled a little bit. I think he's averaged two and a half points this year. Uh, but that's something that never would have happened. Um, or you never You would have considered that playing out that way impossible at the start of the 2021 season. Weddle was an Arkansas State transfer and a two-year starter in the Phelps era who averaged 11 points per game. Weddle was inarguably better over a long haul, but Yusufu was a pretty key cog on an NCAA tournament team that did advance last year. It's easy to forget. And for that, he's through. So eight-sided dice roll here. It's a seven. Yusufu goes through to the next round. Next Drake battle, Josh Young, first-teamer twice, second-teamer once, all-freshman and all-newcomer versus uh, Shanquan Hemphill. Love Hemphill in his game. He's still playing for the Bulldogs, uh, but he gets an unforgiving draw. Young is easily the most decorated Drake player since I've been covering the Valley. He's through in this one, and it's a 10-sided roll, and it's a five, so Josh Young is indeed through to the next round. Final Drake battle, uh, DJ Wilkins, all-freshman, versus Roman Penn, Valley first-teamer and all-newcomer. Uh, both current Bulldogs, both in the Bulldog backcourt, and both are great, um, and both have burned the Sycamores in the times I've, I've watched them. Um, but I have, I have to go with Penn here. I have a ton of respect for his point guard game. He's very mistake-free, so smooth, makes good decisions, seems like he's a great teammate. He's had some bad injury luck. Uh, but when he's been healthy, he's been excellent. He gets the call here over Wilkins, who's also really good. But uh, the dice say that I am right. Robin Penn is through to the next round. So here is Drake's quarterfinal matchups. Adam Emenecker beats my non-sentimental pick for Ravante Rice with the upset roll, and he'll play Ben Simons in the next round. Nick McGlynn goes through in the upset roll, um, and he'll face Darnell Brody in the next round. Jonathan Cox versus Joseph Yusufu and Josh Young versus Roman Penn are the Drake survivors. So next we move on uh, the one that's close to my own heart, Indiana State, the next school we do. So let's get into it. Um, first matchup, Cole Holmstrom got a bye. He qualified as an all-freshman, uh, and he goes up against Christian Williams, who won the one and only play-in uh, matchup we had for the Sycamores. I think it's easy to forget, if you weren't there, how exciting the start of the Cole Holmstrom, Mariko Stinson era was during Royce Waltman's last season. Those guys came out of the box and produced. Um, and if you were, you probably have no reason to remember this. ISU was started the Valley season that year, I think, like 4-1. and one, And then they absolutely dropped through, this, through the basement. They, I think, only won one Valley game after that the rest of the way. Um, Holmstrom averaged 9.2 points during that season, and he specifically fit Waltman's style of offense. And by the time Kevin McKenna came on, he really Holmstrom didn't really fit what, what McKenna wanted to do offensively, and those two didn't get along very well, although that wasn't really public uh, necessarily at the time. Uh, Williams was a big contributor to uh, you know, a winning season in 2020, uh, kind of the Lansing uh, – kind of the Indian summer of his career there at the end. I'm going to give him the call over Cole Holmstrom. So eight-sided dice roll here, and it's a six. Christian Williams is through to the next round. 
Next, ISU battle. Both these guys, everybody from here on out has not been discussed, so we'll treat them like we're introducing them. Trey Williams, all defense versus Brenton Scott, second teamer, all freshman, and all newcomer. Trey Williams, also a key part of the Lansing Indian summer years of 2020 and 21, and was really good defensively last season, uh, made the all-defensive team. Scott is one of the hardest players, I think, to assess in my time covering the Sycamores. An excellent scorer and, at times, an unconscious shooter. But he's, again, one of those volume scorers that I tend to frown on a little bit. Took a lot of shots to get his points in certain games. Um, And he also gave up a ton of points because he wasn't a good defender at all. Uh, He got a lot of steals, but he wasn't a good man-on-man defender. He got beat a lot. Um, And Scott arguably maybe got worse as his career progressed. Maybe it's because the teams got worse as his career progressed. It's hard to say. Still, though, he gets the nod over Trey Williams because Scott finished the job. He played all four years. Williams uh, left for Duquesne. So uh, Brenton Scott here gets the nod. Eight-sided dice roll, and it's an eight. Brenton is through, and he'll play Christian Williams in the next round. Next battle, this is an even battle uh, Gabe Moore qualified as an all-defensive player versus Harry Marshall qualified as a second-teamer and all-defensive player. These two guys were both point guards, and they were both teammates for a couple years. Um, Moore was just steady, um, but I do think Marshall had a higher ceiling and was definitely the best player on the 2010 team that finally got ISU over the 500 mark, and they played uh, SLU that year in the CBI. Um both were excellent defenders. Um, Marshall had a little bit of a combustible career. If Holmstrom didn't get along with McKenna largely in private, Marshall's battles with him were anything but private. If you remember, he left the team briefly and it was a big contretemps. I was involved in some of that. It wasn't very fun. Uh, but Marshall overcame it and was productive through the course of his career. I'll never forget the shot he made uh, against Missouri State to in 2010 to keep uh, ISU out of the play-in round of the tournament. That was big, very symbolic shot at that time. Love both of these guys as people uh, and as players, but Marshall gets the edge based on a slightly higher peak than uh, Game Moorhead. So eight-sided roll here, though, and the dice agree. They say Harry Marshall goes through to the next round. Next matchup, Jake LaRavia, second-teamer, all-freshman, all-newcomer versus Devontae Brown, who was a second-teamer twice. For the Sycamores, and I think ISU fans probably forget how good Brown could be. Once he became a starter in 2015, he averaged 11.9 and 15.5 points in his last two years, all while playing really good defense as well. Brown's only flaw was consistency. He would come and go sort of in his game, a flaw that LaRavia didn't possess as much in his two years with the program, uh, both winning years in 20 and 21. And apparently still doesn't possess at Wake Forest because he's been very good for the Demon Deacons as well. LaRavia goes through on a more well-rounded and consistent game, but an eight-sided roll here. So the dice goes flying, and it's a three, so Jake LaRavia is through. No upsets for the Sycamores as of yet. Next battle, also an interesting one. Jordan Barnes qualified as a second-teamer and all-freshman versus Cooper Neese, still playing, of course, who qualified as an all-freshman selection. Difficult choice especially given that Nice's career isn't done yet. He may be due for maybe an honor this year. I don't think he's going to make all-Valley teams or anything like that, but, um, you know, maybe. We'll, we'll see. Um, for the reason, and it's not Nice's fault, but for the reason that his career isn't over yet, I'll go with Barnes, who 
was an excellent three-point shooter and distributor, kind of molded his game as his career went along and, uh, you know, was a good player for ISU. So Barnes is the choice. Nice, you know, kind of a victim of circumstance here. So what does the dice say? It's an eight. Jordan Barnes is through to the next round. Next battle, Jake Odom, uh, first teamer twice, second teamer once, all defense, all freshman, all newcomer versus Jay Tunnel, who qualified as an all-freshman selection. I always feel bad for Tunnel because he's the first player I covered from start to finish, from recruitment to the end of his career at ISU. Uh, he was the, if you remember, he was the Kansas Mr. Basketball coming out of high school in 05. Um, and because of that, he was probably saddled with some unrealistic expectations. Uh, he sort of, I, I, this may be overstating it, but... You know, he was the experienced guy in the late part of Weltman's career, so a lot of pressure, uh, I guess, was on him to produce at that period of time. Um, I thought ISU fans were a little hard on him at times. I thought he was a really good player over his ISU career. All of that said, he got a bad draw because Odom is an absolute no-brainer here, obviously the um, the, the winningest player that will be in this field. So 10-sided dice roll on this one. And it's an eight. Jake Odom is through to the next round. Next ISU battle, Mariko Stinson, who qualified as an all-freshman, versus David Moss, second teamer twice, all-freshman and all-newcomer. Stinson had real talent, and at his peak moments, he was as good as any Sycamore in my time covering the team. If you remember that game, he played against Drake at Holman Center where he uh, just went ridiculously unconscious in the first half of that game. Um, but he had some, you know, he had some issues off the floor and it ultimately, um, killed his career before its time. Moss, on the other hand, is still, still the best all around player I've covered at ISU. He could do it all. He was sort of like, uh, Osiris Eldridge at Illinois State, though he didn't score as much because ISU itself didn't score as much. Um, I have zero clue how he never made an all defensive team because he should have. Maybe that's a reflection of the teams he played on at the time. Um, and Moss is still going strong, playing in Italy for Brescia um, in what is now a 16-year professional career. So Moss is an easy choice here, but he's got to survive an eight-sided dice roll against Stinson. And he does barely. That thing almost rolled over to a one. But David Moss is through to the next round. And he will face the winner of Tyree Key, uh, who qualified as a first-teamer twice, second-teamer and all-freshman, versus Isaiah Martin, who you may forget qualified as an all-freshman. Two great people. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm giving Key short shrift when I say best all-around player because he's right there with Moss in terms of having an all-around game and Odom. Um, <clears throat> two great people here, but as far as basketball accomplishments, uh, this one is easy choice for Tyreek. So 10-sided dice roll here. And it's a nine, so no upsets in the Indiana State bracket. So in the quarterfinals, ISU's battles are Christian Williams versus Brenton Scott, Harry Marshall versus Jake LaRavia, Jordan Barnes versus Jake Odom, David Moss versus Tyreek Key. Yikes, that's going to be tough. Woo. All right, let's move on to the schools that we haven't uh, done yet, and starting with Evansville, as they had... Exactly 16 qualifiers. Um, first matchup, so there's no plans here. <clears throat> Colt Ryan, a first-teamer twice, second-teamer once, all-freshman and all-newcomer, versus Matt Webster, who qualified as a second-teamer once. 
Colt Ryan was a heck of a player, heck of a shooter, could do a lot of stuff. My only issue with him, and it's not his fault, um, was that Marty Simmons, the way he ran his offenses, really depended, with the exception of the years where DJ Valentine and Agidius Muscovich played, really depended on one go-to scorer. So Ryan would pile up numbers, but he was playing like, you know, almost the whole game, uh, volume shooter, that kind of thing. You know, when it came time for me to assess him, you know, on Val- I, I mean, I always put him on all Valley ballot, but, you know, sometimes I think people got a little bit wooed by his numbers. Not that he wasn't good. I mean, he was good, but I always thought, you know, it's, it wasn't just Ryan, you know, at the end of his career, Shy Eli took advantage of that. Jalen Brown, one year, averaged over 20 points a game because he was taking almost, you know, all the shots. So it's kind of hard to read into the stats a little bit unless you start looking at the per 40-minute numbers and that kind of thing. All of that said, he wins this over Matt Webster, who I really enjoyed watching him as a player in the Steve Murfield era. Um, Kind of definitely had the reputation as a bruiser. Uh, to put it mildly, but Ryan was a better player. So he's the choice. This is a 10-sided roll. Oh, my goodness. We have the biggest upset we've had yet. I rolled a one on this one on a 10-sided dice roll. Matt Webster, in a massive upset, defeats Colt Ryan in the first round of Evansville with some chaos straight away in this bracket. Uh, Next matchup, DJ Ballantyne, the aforementioned. He was a first-teamer three times and an all-freshman selection versus Jason Holsinger, uh, who played in the Murfeld, uh Marty Simmons transition years, uh, who was an all-freshman and an all-newcomer. Valentine, who ISU lost due to Diesel Fest, that is a true story, um, goes through easily over Holsinger. Valentine, probably the best player Evansville has had since I've been covering the Valley. Let's see what the dice say here. Uh, and Ballantyne avoids the upset. He goes through on the 10-sided roll. Next Evansville matchup is a one straight from the random gods' um, weirdness. Uh, Kaylon Williams, who is an all-freshman, versus Ryan Sawvell, also an all-freshman selection, as I drop the dice here. But um, <laughs> these guys, the... Uh, he gads. I mean, Williams averaged 6.3 points in 09 before he transferred to Milwaukee. Sawville averaged 4.8 points in three years before he trucked out to Wofford. This might be the worst matchup of the whole tournament. I guess Sawville for longevity. I don't know. But eight-sided dice roll here, and he goes through. So Ryan Sawville is through to the next round. We got some weird aces in the quarter so far. Um, next matchup, not as weird. Agidius, Muscovich, first-teamer twice, all-defense three times, all-newcomer, all-freshman, versus Jalen Brown, who qualified as a second-teamer. Um, Greg Lansing called him Big E because nobody could pronounce his name. Um, but he's right there with Ballantyne as the best Evansville player I saw. It's too bad that they both played at the same time um, because, uh, well, I guess it's not too bad. Evansville was really good when they played. Um and uh, Muscovich is Marty Simmons' big hit among the Lithuanian players that he likes to recruit. Definitely hit the lottery ticket on that one. Jalen Brown had a had a nice career and had a great final year with the Aces in uh, 2017. He averaged two, 20.9 points. But the big man gets the call here, easy call. And this is a 10-sided dice roll, too. 
And it's a six, so Agidius is through to the next round. Next matchup, Shy Eli, first teamer and all freshman selection versus Troy Taylor, all defense twice. I hate this for Troy Taylor because I really love Troy Taylor's game. He was um, – it's a shame he didn't get one of the other also-rans in this bracket. He didn't score much, obviously, because he played with Colt Ryan. He may have – I think primarily he played with Colt Ryan. He may have overlapped with Ballantyne. Maybe not. Um, either way, he was uh, just a great defender, um, hit the boards, was a good distributor. He reminds me, um, maybe apart from the rebounds, of Julian Larry, very similar type of player. Uh, Evansville used to throw Taylor onto Jake Odom a lot, and that was always a good battle. Um, still, I can in good conscience pick uh, Taylor over Shy Eli, who peaked out at 18.9 points. Yes, volume scoring and all that, but Eli was a good player, and he gets the call here. Eight-sided dice roll here. It's a seven, so Shy Eli is into the next round. Next matchup, Drew Smith, all freshman, versus Ryan Taylor, who was a first-teamer. Um, both these guys left Evansville in kind of their coaching churn of the late 2010s. Um, Smith went to Missouri. Taylor went to Northwestern. But Taylor was a clear choice here. The one year he did have, he averaged over 20 points per game. Really good player. Um, and he gets the call, though Drew Smith was also good. The dice... It's a four, so Ryan Taylor is through to the next round. Next Evansville battle, Peter Von Tongren, who was an all-freshman selection, versus Ned Cox, bench captain. Another matchup straight from the random draw twilight zone. Uh, Van Tongren was a big man. He only averaged 4.9 points over his four years with Evansville. Um, 08 is the year he qualified. That must have been a bad year for for freshmen um i'm just as shocked as you might be that cox ever won a valley honor but the truth is he was i I shouldn't throw shade i mean he was a lot more productive than van tongren and cox averaged 8.8 points a game he was a double digit score of the year he won bench captain so he's through um cox threw the dice agree so ned cox into the quarters and the final Evansville matchup, we have Blake Simmons, who qualified as an all-freshman, versus current Evansville guard Shamara Givens, qualified as a second-teamer. Simmons started 133 of the 134 games he played for his dad, uh, Coach Marty Simmons. This, Despite the fact he only averaged 8.1 points a game, Givens has averaged 8.6 points, but he is also kind of a volume shooter in Todd Licklider's offense. Um, and he's played for a couple of the worst teams in Valley history. Um, at least Simmons contributed to some winning teams. He goes through in kind of a weak draw. Um, let's see what the dice say. Oh, Shamar Givens on the upset over Blake Simmons. So two upsets in the Aces uh, round of 16 bracket. So here's what we have going forward. Um, in the biggest upset of them all, Matt Webster knocks off Colt Ryan. He will face DJ Ballantyne, another giant, in the next round. Uh, Ryan Savell, as I lost my page here, um, advances to play Agidius Muscovich. Shy Eli versus Ryan, Ryan Taylor. And Ned Cox versus Shamar Givens in the next round. So uh, weirdness in the Aces bracket. Next, Creighton. 
who left the league in 2013, but they managed to get 16 players qualified into this. First matchup, Anthony Tolliver, first-teamer and second-teamer. That's how he qualified, versus Ethan Raggy, who's an all-freshman and a bench captain for the Blue Jays. Tolliver has carved out a really nice NBA career, and was I thought he was underrated on those mid-2000s Blue Jays teams. Um, he's definitely threw over Raggy, who was a bench specialist for the Jays. He, I think, was on the team when they moved down to the Big East. Uh, eight-sided roll here, though. And it's an eight. Tolliver is through to the next round for Creighton. Next Creighton matchup, Greg Eshenike, all defense three times, an all-newcomer selection, versus Booker Woodfox, first-teamer, all-newcomer, and a bench captain. Man, Eshenike was a physical specimen. He's one of the just most imposing-looking guys to play in the Valley since I've been covering the league. Just a huge, bulky uh, center. Uh, but Wood Fox was the 2009 Player of the Year and did provide the winning shot in the best Arch Madness game I've ever witnessed in 09 when they beat uh, Wichita after Wichita had made a great comeback to take the lead late. Uh, that was pre-good Wichita. People forget Wichita, I believe, came out of the play-in that year to play that game. So um, I, my memory might be wrong on that, but it was definitely... I think it was the, the third of four games on the Friday at Arch Madness, so that would be true. Anyway... Um, Woodfox doesn't need the two dribbles and a hand sandwich to get through to this round, but this is an eight-sided roll, so let's see what happens. It's a seven, so Booker Woodfox is through to the next round. Uh, next Creighton matchup, Kenny Lawson Jr., qualified as a second-teamer, all-defense twice and all-freshman, versus Doug McDermott, first-teamer three times, all-newcomer and all-freshman. Creighton's time away from the Valley kind of helped me to forget that Lawson was really good for the late 2000s Blue Jays. Blue Jays did win the league in 09. I think that's kind of forgotten about. They got beat um, in the uh, in the Valley Tournament that year, and the league wasn't good enough for them to get a at-large. Uh, but, I mean, you know, come on. I mean, he's he got the draw that no Blue Jay wanted, as McDermott is the no-brainer selection here. So 10-sided roll on this one, and it's an 8. McDermott is through to the next round. Next uh, Creighton one. This one is for the completists. Dane Watts qualified as an all-freshman versus Johnny Mathis qualified as a second-teamer. Watts is another Dana Altman-era Blue Jay who sort of slipped out of my consciousness a little bit, uh, but he got better as he went along in his career and was a high 30s uh, three-point shooter. Mathis averaged 11.1 uh, points in his career, peaked out at 13 and a half in the MVC's watermarks, high watermark season of 06. I'll give him the slight edge, uh, Mathis, over Watts. Dice roll. No, Dane Watts on the upset goes through over Johnny Mathis. So we have our first Blue Jay upset. Next battle, Antoine Young, who qualified as a second teamer, versus uh, Yahens Manigat, who qualified as an all-freshman player. Young was so steady uh, for the Blue Jays when he played. Reliable scorer um, as he spent two years on with Altman and then two with Greg McDermott when he came to Omaha. Manigat, more of a bench contributor and played most of his career, I believe, in the Big East era. Um, for some reason, I thought his nickname was the GOAT, but I was way wrong in that. His nickname was Canadian Red Bull, so my mind wanders. I'm old. So anyway, Antoine Young's the choice here. Let's see what the dice say. Another upset. Manigat is through on the one roll. So 
Blue Jays with a little chaos here in the middle of their bracket. Next matchup, Isaac Miles, who qualified as an all-freshman selection, versus Grant Gibbs, who qualified as an all-newcomer selection. This is a weird one. And Miles is definitely one of the more obscure players that made this tournament. Um, he only spent one season at Creighton and only averaged 6.1 points as an all-freshman selection. Again, that must have been a week here before he played the majority of his career at Murray State. Uh, Grant Gibbs came to Creighton from Gonzaga and did average 7.8 points in Creighton's last two years in the Valley. He's the choice here. Let's see what the dice say. Another upset, Isaac Miles, holy cow, is through to the next round. Um, I would not have uh, guessed that. So Grant Gibbs gets dissed by the dice. As we are to our next Creighton matchup, Nick Porter qualified as an all-newcomer player versus P. Allen Stinnett, a second-teamer, all-freshman player, and all-newcomer. Porter played from 05 to 07 and averaged 10.2 points a game. He had a good all-round game from what I remember. Uh, Stinnett was one of the most mercurial players to play in the MVC, was a kind of a headache for Dana Altman. He was vastly talented but was constantly in the doghouse there, it seemed like. And his career actually got worse as it went along. He started really well. Uh, but kind of fell off. And even though he was the second best player to Woodfox on the 09 team, I'm going to go with Carter because he played for an NCAA tournament team. It was just less problematic than Stinnett was. So dice roll on this. We've had three upsets in a row, but not a fourth as Nick Porter is through to the next round. Uh, final Creighton battle, Nate Funk, a first-teamer twice versus Josh Dotzler, all defense and all freshmen. Funk got hurt in 06. Otherwise, the Blue Jays could have very easily jumped into the NCAA tournament mix that season. They were, you know, kind of on the bubble as it was anyway. Prior to his injury, he was nearly a 50% three-point shooter in an era where that just didn't happen. Um, and he was dead on nails at the free throw line, too, almost a 90% free throw shooter. Even after his injury, he averaged, he, he lost a little bit off his three-point shot, but he still averaged 17.7 points a game. Dotzler was one of those drama-free guards that Dana liked to have uh, aside his scorers. Um, good player, but Funk is an easy choice here. Ten-sided dice roll for this one, and it's a three, so Nate Funk is through. So we had some low-key chaos in the middle of the Creighton bracket. Uh, nobody major got bumped off, but some weirdness. So our quarterfinal matchups for Creighton are Anthony Tolliver versus Booker Woodfox, Doug McDermott versus Dane Watts, who goes through on the upset. Yahens Manigat versus Isaac Miles is definitely the weirdest quarterfinal matchup we have in any of the rounds. And then Nick Porter versus Nate Funk on the bottom of the bracket. So those are Creighton's survivors. Final school of the day, Loyola. This will only have six matchups. Two players get buys. Milton Doyle at the top of the bracket. Cameron Krautwig um, in the bottom portion of the bracket. So here we go. Ben Richardson, who qualified as an all-defensive player, versus Montel James, second-teamer and all-newcomer. James was on uh, Loyola's first two MVC teams, the ones that kind of struggled to find their feet in the league. Um, he averaged 12.2 points per game in 2016. Richardson never averaged that much in his four years, but he was a key component on the Final Four team. Um, and that's how he made the all-defensive team. He's going to go through on team accomplishment, though this was a tough call. Uh, Eight-sided dice roll here, and it's a two. Ben Richardson 
does go through over Montel James. That was a tough pick uh, there. Next one, Marcus Towns, who qualified as a first-teamer, versus Tate Hall, who qualified as a newcomer, all-newcomer, and still playing for the Ramblers. Towns transferred into Loyola from Fairleigh Dickinson and immediately gave the Ramblers a jolt as he averaged 13.1 points in 2018 and 19. He is uh, he was more impactful than Hall, who did play for their you know the Loyola Sweet 16 team last year and is still active. Uh, but I got to give this one to Marcus Towns. Eight side all the I think I think all the Loyola ones are eight sided rolls for this. So here we go, and it's an eight. So Marcus Towns goes through to the next round. Next Loyola battle: Andre Jackson, all newcomer and bench captain, versus Braden Norris, who's an all newcomer selection. You know, Jackson was an early clue to me that Porter Moser had found the right mix in his offensive formula because Jackson, even the year before the Final Four team, was uh, converting at well over 50% in the lane. He was just that offense creates really high percentage shots uh, for those who take advantage of it. And then that 17 season, it was Jackson, and to an extent, even in the Final Four year as well. Uh, Norris is still playing, and he's converted 42% of his three-point shots and is often a nice late-game closer for the Ramblers. Tough call on this one. I'm going to give this one to Norris by a whisker. Jackson kind of did fall off a bit at the end of his Loyola career, but this one could have gone either way. Let's see what the dice say. And they agree with me. Braden Norris is through to the next round. Um, Next battle we have is Lucas Williamson, second-teamer, all-defense twice and all-freshman, versus Aher Uguak, I can never say that right, uh, who's currently playing, both of these guys are playing for the Ramblers currently at an all-defensive selection. Uguak has really improved as he's gone along. I remember the first year he played for Loyola, he hit a couple three-pointers against the Sycamores, and they were like two of the three he made for the whole season because he hardly played and certainly wasn't a shooter. Um, he's come along nicely. Now he he he's he can shoot from three-point range these days and is a very good defender. However, he's not on the same level as Williamson, who is also a great defender. And just kind of like Darren Brooks, kind of like David Moss, kind of like um, a few other players like that, just kind of kicks butt in an all-around sense. You know, he can score. Obviously, he can defend. And a real key cog for the Loyola Revival. Uh, he bridges the gap between the final four team and the current team. So he's the pick here. Eight-sided dice roll. Let's see how it goes. It's a two. Williamson is through to the next round where he'll have to play Cameron Krautwig. Yikes. Uh, final, or not final battle, second last battle, Dante Ingram, who qualified as a second teamer, versus Marquise Kennedy, qualified as an all-freshman and bench captain for the Ramblers. Intriguing battle. Ingram grew with the program. Um, as it got better, as he averaged uh, a peak of 13.6 points per game and was at an 11-point-per-game uh, clip for the Final Four team. He didn't have to score as much with a better team. Um, and not all bench captains are created equal. Some years, some guys luck out and finish their career with that honor. But Kennedy, who is now a starter for Loyola, uh, is probably one of the better bench captains to come through. He averaged, He has averaged 8.2 points per game over his career, but he is deadly in short bursts, as ISU found out um, in Chicago earlier this year. Kennedy's per-40-minute totals reflect his excellence as his career 40-minute-per-game uh, average is 16.2 points per game. Still, 
I'm going to give this one to Ingram for now because he goes through on full hero status for hitting the buzzer beater against Miami in the uh, 2018 tournament that launched their Final Four run. So eight-sided dice roll here, and it's a seven. So Dante Ingram is through to the next round. Final battle of the day. Cooper Kafis, all-freshman selection versus Clayton Custer, a first-teamer in 2018. Kafis... Started well, but then he got hurt in 2020. That pretty much scuttled his Loyola career, and he has since transferred out. Custer came to Loyola from Iowa State and had an immediate impact uh, on that team that went to the Final Four. Custer gets the call here. Eight-sided dice roll, and it's a four, so Custer is through. So uh, no upsets in the Loyola bracket. So this is their quarterfinals. Milton Doyle, who got a bye, plays Ben Richardson. Marcus Towns versus Braden Norris. Cameron Krautwig versus Lucas Williamson, a tough one there. And Dante Ingram versus Clayton Custer, a tough one there as well. So that's it. And that will do it. Uh, We will hopefully be doing another couple rounds before Arch Madness. But I appreciate you listening. I hope you're having fun with this. And we'll see you on the flippity flip. Uh, Until next time.